Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads, where in every episode I handpick a different piece of short fiction and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. And today we are bringing you part two of The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. It's from Exhalation by Ted Chang, published by Penguin Random House Audio, an imprint of Penguin Publishing Group. If you've just arrived on this episode, please make sure you go back and listen to the previous one, because otherwise I'm afraid this one won't make a whole lot of sense. And for those of you who did listen to part one, welcome back. And let's just take a moment to remember what happened last episode, shall we? Remember, the story takes place in an ancient Baghdad. Our narrator, Fuad, is recounting stories for the caliph, the ruler. He has told of a shopkeeper named Bashrat who practices alchemy, and this shopkeeper has created a portal for time travel, quickly demonstrating it for Fuad and then telling him several stories of how his customers have gone through this gate. We heard of Hassan the rope maker, who spoke with and acted on the instructions of his future self, digging up a treasure that would make him a wealthy man. And we heard about Ajib, the weaver, who stole his future self's savings and thus closed the loop that was predestined for him. We return to the story here. Fuad says that the older version of Hassan, the rope maker, never came to visit the shopkeeper again, but that another visitor came and told him another story about Hassan, one that he could not tell himself. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Ah. <sighs> And begin. The Tale of the Wife and Her Lover Rania had been married to Hassan for many years, and they lived the happiest of lives. One day, she saw her husband dine with a young man whom she recognized as the very image of Hassan when she had first married him. So great was her astonishment that she could scarcely keep herself from intruding on their conversation. 
After the young man left, she demanded that Hassan tell her who he was. And Hassan related to her an incredible tale. Have you told him about me? She asked. Did you know what lay ahead of us when we first met? I knew I would marry you from the moment I saw you, Hassan said, smiling. But not because anyone had told me. Surely, wife, you would not wish to spoil that moment for him. So Rania did not speak to her husband's younger self, but only eavesdropped on his conversation and stole glances at him. Her pulse quickened at the sight of his youthful features. Sometimes our memories fool us with their sweetness. But when she beheld the two men seated opposite each other, she could see the fullness of the younger one's beauty without exaggeration. At night, she would lie awake, thinking of it. Some days after Hassan had bid farewell to his younger self, he left Cairo to conduct business with a merchant in Damascus. In his absence, Rania found the shop that Hassan had described to her and stepped through the gate of years to the Cairo of her youth. She remembered where he had lived back then and so was easily able to find the young Hassan and follow him. As she watched him, she felt a desire stronger than she had felt in years for the older Hassan. So vivid were her recollections of their youthful lovemaking. She had always been a loyal and faithful wife, but here was an opportunity that would never be available again. Resolving to act on this desire, Rania rented a house and in subsequent days bought furnishings for it. Once the house was ready, she followed Hassan discreetly while she tried to gather enough boldness to approach him. In the jeweler's market, she watched as he went to a jeweler, showed him a necklace set with ten gemstones, and asked him how much he would pay for it. Rania recognized it as one Hassan had given to her in the days after their wedding. She had not known he had once tried to sell it. She stood a short distance away and listened, pretending to look at some rings. Bring it back tomorrow and I will pay you a thousand dinars, said the jeweler. Young Hassan agreed to the price and left. As she watched him leave, Rania overheard two men talking nearby. Did you see that necklace? It is one of ours. Are you certain? asked the other. I am. That is the bastard who dug up our chest. Let us tell our captain about him. After this fellow has sold his necklace, we will take his money and more. The two men left without noticing Rania who stood with her heart racing, but her body motionless like a deer after a tiger is passed. She realized that the treasure Hassan had dug up must have belonged to a band of thieves, and those men were two of its members. They were now observing the jewelers of Cairo to identify the person who had taken their loot. 
Ranya knew that since she possessed the necklace, the young Hassan could not have sold it. She also knew that the thieves could not have killed Hassan, but it could not be Allah's will for her to do nothing. Allah must have brought her here so that he might use her as his instrument. Ranya returned to the Gate of Years, stepped through to her own day, and at her house found the necklace in her jewelry box. Then she used the Gate of Years again, but instead of entering it from the left side, she entered it from the right, so that she visited the Cairo of twenty years later. There, she sought out her older self, now an aged woman. The older Ranya greeted her warmly and retrieved the necklace from her own jewelry box. The two women then rehearsed how they would assist the young Hassan. The next day, the two thieves were back with a third man whom Ranya assumed was their captain. They all watched as Hassan presented the necklace to the jeweler. As the jeweler examined it, Ranya walked up and said, what a coincidence. Jeweler, I wish to sell a necklace just like that. She brought out her necklace from a purse she carried. This is remarkable, said the jeweler. I have never seen two necklaces more similar. Then the aged Rania walked up. What do I see? Surely my eyes deceive me. And with that, she brought out a third identical necklace. The seller sold it to me with the promise that it was unique. This proves him a liar. Perhaps you should return it, said Rania. That depends, said the aged Rania. She asked Hassan, how much is he paying you for it? A thousand dinars, said Hassan, bewildered. Really? Jeweler, would you care to buy this one too? I must reconsider my offer, said the jeweler. While Hassan and the aged Rania bargained with the jeweler, Rania stepped back just far enough to hear the captain berate the other thieves. You fools, he said. It is a common necklace. You would have us kill half the jewelers in Cairo and bring the guardsmen down upon our heads. He slapped their heads and led them off. Rania returned her attention to the jeweler who had withdrawn his offer to buy Hassan's necklace. The older, Rania said, Very well. I will try to return it to the man who sold it to me. As the older woman left, Rania could tell that she smiled beneath her veil. Rania turned to Hassan. It appears that neither of us will sell a necklace today. Another day, perhaps, said Hassan. I shall take mine back to my house for safekeeping, said Rania. Would you walk with me? Hassan agreed and walked with Rania to the house she had rented. Then she invited him in, and 
offered him wine. And after they both had drunk some, she led him to her bedroom. She covered the windows with heavy curtains and extinguished all lamps so that the room was as dark as night. Only then did she remove her veil and take him to bed. Rania had been flush with anticipation for this moment and so was surprised to find that Hassan's movements were clumsy and awkward. She remembered their wedding night very clearly. He had been confident, and his touch had taken her breath away. She knew Hassan's first meeting with the young Rania was not far away, and for a moment did not understand how this fumbling boy could change so quickly. And then, of course, the answer was clear. So, every afternoon, for many days, Rania met Hassan at her rented house and instructed him in the art of love. And in doing so, she demonstrated that, as is often said, women are Allah's most wondrous creation. She told him, The pleasure you give is returned in the pleasure you receive. And inwardly, she smiled as she thought of how true her words really were. Before long, he gained the expertise she remembered, and she took greater enjoyment in it than she had as a young woman. All too soon, the day arrived when Rania told the young Hassan that it was time for her to leave. He knew better than to press her for her reasons, but asked her if they might ever see each other again. She told him gently, no. Then she sold the furnishings to the house's owner and returned through the gate of years to the Cairo of her own day. When the older Hassan returned from his trip to Damascus, Rania was home waiting for him. She greeted him warmly, but kept her secrets to herself. I was lost in my own thoughts when Bashrat finished this story until he said, I see this story has intrigued you in a way the others did not. You see clearly, I admitted, I realize now that even though the past is unchangeable, one may encounter the unexpected when visiting it. Indeed. Do you now understand why I say the future and the past are the same? We cannot change either, but we can know both more fully. I do understand. You have opened my eyes, and now I wish to use the gate of years. What price do you ask? He waved his hand. I do not sell passage through the gate, he said. Allah guides whom he wishes to my shop, and I am content to be an instrument of his will. 
Had it been another man, I would have taken his words to be a negotiating ploy. But after all that Bashrat had told me, I knew that he was sincere. Your generosity is as boundless as your learning, I said and bowed. If there is ever a service that a merchant of fabrics might provide for you, please call upon me. Thank you. Let us now talk about your trip. There are some matters we must speak of before you visit the Baghdad of twenty years hence. I do not wish to visit the future, I told him. I would step through in the other direction to revisit my youth. Ah, my deepest apologies. This gate will not take you there. You see, I built this gate only a week ago. Twenty years ago, there was no doorway here for you to step out of. My dismay was so great that I must have sounded like a forlorn child. I said, but where does the other side of the gate lead? and walked around the circular doorway to face its opposite side. Bashrat walked around the doorway to stand beside me. The view through the gate appeared identical to the view outside it, but when he extended his hand to reach through, it stopped as if met by an invisible wall. I looked more closely and noticed a brass lamp set on a table. Its flame did not flicker, but was as fixed and unmoving as if the room were trapped in clearest amber. What you see here is the room as it appeared last week, said Bashrat. In some twenty years' time, this left side of the gate will permit entry allowing people to enter from this direction and visit their past. Or, he said, leading me back to the side of the doorway he had first shown me, we can enter from the right side now and visit them ourselves. But I'm afraid this gate will never allow visits to the days of your youth. What about the gate of years you had in Cairo? I asked. He nodded. That gate still stands. My son now runs my shop there. So I could travel to Cairo and use the gate to visit the Cairo of 20 years ago. From there, I could travel back to Baghdad. Yes, you could make that journey if you so desire. But I do, I said. Will you tell me how to find your shop? In Cairo, we must speak of some things first, said Bashrat. I will not ask your intentions, being content to wait until you are ready to tell me, but I would remind you that what is made cannot be unmade. I know, I said, and that you cannot avoid the ordeals that are assigned. What Allah gives you, you must accept. I remind myself of that every day of my life. Then it is my honor to assist you in whatever way I can, he said. He brought out some paper 
and a pen and inkpot and began writing. I shall write for you a letter to aid you on your journey. He folded the letter, dribbled some candle wax over the edge, and pressed his ring against it. When you reach Cairo, give this to my son, and he will let you enter the gate of years there. A merchant such as myself must be well-versed in expressions of gratitude, but I had never before been as effusive in giving thanks as I was to Bashrat, and every word was heartfelt. He gave me directions to his shop in Cairo, and I assured him I would tell him all upon my return. As I was about to leave his shop, a thought occurred to me. Because the gate of years you have here opens to the future, you are assured that the gate and this shop will remain standing for 20 years or more. Yes, that is true, said Bashra. I began to ask him if he had met his older self, but then I bit back my words. If the answer was no, it was surely because his older self was dead and I would be asking him if he knew the date of his death. Who was I to make such an inquiry when this man was granting me a boon without asking my intentions? I saw from his expression that he knew what I had meant to ask, and I bowed my head in humble apology. He indicated his acceptance with a nod, and I returned home to make arrangements. The caravan took two months to reach Cairo. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Now, let's get back to our story. As for what occupied my mind during the journey, Your Majesty, I now tell you what I had not told Bashrat. 
I was married once, 20 years before, to a woman named Naja. Her figure swayed as gracefully as a willow bough, and her face was as lovely as the moon, but it was her kind and tender nature that captured my heart. I had just begun my career as a merchant when we married, and we were not wealthy, but did not feel the lack. We had been married only a year when I was to travel to Basra to meet with a ship's captain. I had an opportunity to profit by trading in slaves, but Naja did not approve. I reminded her that the Quran does not forbid the owning of slaves as long as one treats them well, and that even the Prophet owned some. But she said there was no way I could know how my buyers would treat their slaves, and that it was better to sell goods than men. On the morning of my departure, Naja and I argued. I spoke harshly to her using words that it shames me to recall, and I beg your majesty's forgiveness if I do not repeat them here. I left in anger, never saw her again. She was badly injured when the wall of a mosque collapsed some days after I left. She was taken to the Bimaristan, but the physicians could not save her, and she died soon after. I did not learn of her death until I returned a week later, and I felt as if I had killed her with my own hand. Can the torments of hell be worse than what I endured in the days that followed? It seemed likely that I would find out. So near to death did my anguish take me. And surely the experience must be similar, for like infernal fire, grief burns but does not consume. Instead, it makes the heart vulnerable to further suffering. Eventually, my period of lamentation ended, and I was left a hollow man, a bag of skin with no innards. I freed the slaves I had bought and became a fabric merchant. Over the years, I became wealthy, but I never remarried. Some of the men I did business with tried to match me with a sister or a daughter, telling me that the love of a woman can make you forget your pains. Perhaps they are right, but it cannot make you forget the pain you caused another. Whenever I imagined myself marrying another woman, I remembered the look of hurt in Naja's eyes when I last saw her, and my heart was closed to others. I spoke to a mullah about what I had done, and it was he who told me that repentance and atonement erased the past. I repented and atoned as best I knew how. For twenty years I lived as an upright man. I offered prayers and fasted, and gave alms to those less fortunate and made a pilgrimage to Mecca, and yet I was still haunted by guilt. Allah is all-merciful, so I knew the failing to be mine. 
Had Basharat asked me, I could not have said what I hoped to achieve. It was clear from his stories that I could not change what I knew to have happened. No one had stopped my younger self from arguing with Naja in our final conversation. But the tale of Rania, which lay hidden within the tale of Hassan's life without his knowing it, gave me a slim hope. Perhaps I might be able to play some part in events while my younger self was away on business. Could it not be that there had been a mistake and my Naja had survived? Perhaps it was another woman whose body had been wrapped in a shroud and buried while I was gone. Perhaps I could rescue Naja and bring her back with me to the Baghdad of my own day. I knew it was foolhardy. Men of experience say four things do not come back. The spoken word, the sped arrow, the past life, and the neglected opportunity. And I understood the truth of those words better than most. And yet, I dared to hope that Allah had judged my twenty years of repentance sufficient and was now granting me a chance to regain what I had lost. The caravan journey was uneventful, and after sixty sunrises and three hundred prayers, I reached Cairo. There I had to navigate the city's streets, which are a bewildering maze compared to the harmonious design of the City of Peace. I made my way to the Bain al-Kasrain, the main street that runs through the Fatimid quarter of Cairo. From there... I found the street on which Bashrat's shop was located. I told the shopkeeper that I had spoken to his father in Baghdad and gave him the letter Bashrat had given me. After reading it, he led me into a back room in whose center stood another gate of years, and he gestured for me to enter from its left side. As I stood before the massive circle of metal, I felt a chill and chided myself for my nervousness. With a deep breath, I stepped through and found myself in the same room with different furnishings. If not for those, I would not have known the gate to be different from an ordinary doorway. Then I recognized that the chill I had felt was simply the coolness of the air in this room for the day here was not as hot as the day I had left. I could feel its warm breeze at my back, coming through the gate like a sigh. The shopkeeper followed behind me and called out, Father, you have a visitor. A man entered the room, and who should it be but Basrat, twenty years younger than when I had seen him in Baghdad. Welcome, my lord, he said. I am Bashrat. You do not know me? I asked. No, you must have met my older self. For me, this is our first meeting. But it is my honor to assist you. 
Your Majesty, as befits this chronicle of my shortcomings, I must confess that so immersed was I in my own woes during the journey from Baghdad, I had not previously realized that Bashrat had likely recognized me the moment I stepped into his shop. Even as I was admiring his water clock and brass songbird, he had known that I would travel to Cairo and likely knew whether I had achieved my goal or not. Bashrat I spoke to now knew none of those things. I am doubly grateful for your kindness, sir, I said. My name is Fuad ibn Abbas, newly arrived from Baghdad. Bashrat's son took his leave, and Bashrat and I conferred. I asked him the day and month, confirming that there was ample time for me to travel back to the City of Peace, and promised him I would tell him everything when I returned. His younger self was as gracious as his older. I look forward to speaking with you on your return and to assisting you again 20 years from now, he said. His words gave me pause. Had you planned to open a shop in Baghdad before today? Why, do you ask? I had been marveling at the coincidence that we met in Baghdad just in time for me to make my journey here, use the gate, and travel back. But now, I wonder if it is perhaps not a coincidence at all. Is my arrival here today the reason that you will move to Baghdad 20 years from now? Bashrat smiled. Coincidence and intention are two sides of a tapestry, my lord. You may find one more agreeable to look at, but you cannot say one is true and the other is false. Now as ever, you have given me much to think about, I said. I thanked him and bid farewell. As I was leaving his shop, I passed a woman entering with some haste. I heard Bashrat greet her as Rania and stopped in surprise. From just outside the door, I could hear the woman say, I have the necklace. I hope my older self has not lost it. I am sure you will have kept it safe in anticipation of your visit, said Bashrat. I realized that this was Rania from the story Bashrat had told me. She was on her way to collect her older self so that they might return to the days of their youth, confound some thieves with a doubled necklace, and save their husband. For a moment, I was unsure if I were dreaming or awake because I felt as if I had stepped into a tale and the thought that I might talk to its players and partake of its events was dizzying. I was tempted to speak and see if I might play a hidden role in that tale. But then I remembered that my goal was to play a hidden role in my own tale. So I left without a word and went to arrange passage with a caravan. It is said, Your Majesty, that fate laughs at men's schemes. At first, it appeared as if I were the most fortunate of men. 
for a caravan headed for Baghdad was departing within the month, and I was able to join it. In the weeks that followed, I began to curse my luck, because the caravan's journey was plagued by delays. The wells at a town not far from Cairo were dry, and an expedition had to be sent back for water. At another village, the soldiers protecting the caravan contracted dysentery, and we had to wait for weeks for their recovery. With each delay, I revised my estimate of when we'd reach Baghdad and grew increasingly anxious. Then there were the sandstorms, which seemed like a warning from Allah and truly caused me to doubt the wisdom of my actions. We had the good fortune to be resting at a caravanserai west of Kufa when the sandstorms first struck, but our stay was prolonged from days to weeks as time and again the skies became clear only to darken again as soon as the camels were reloaded. The day of Naja's accident was fast approaching and I grew desperate. I solicited each of the camel drivers in turn trying to hire one to take me ahead, alone, but could not persuade any of them. Eventually, I found one willing to sell me a camel at what would have been an exorbitant price under ordinary circumstances, but which I was all too willing to pay. I then struck out on my own. It will come as no surprise that I made little progress in the storm. But when the winds subsided, I immediately adopted a rapid pace. Without the soldiers that accompanied the caravan, however, I was an easy target for bandits. And sure enough, I was stopped after two days' ride. They took my money and the camel I had purchased, but spared my life, whether out of pity or because they could not be bothered to kill me, I do not know. I began walking back to rejoin the caravan, but now the skies tormented me with their cloudlessness, and I suffered from the heat. By the time the caravan found me, my tongue was swollen, and my lips were as cracked as mud baked by the sun. After that, I had no choice but to accompany the caravan at its usual pace. Like a fading rose that drops its petals one by one. My hopes dwindled with each passing day. By the time the caravan reached the City of Peace, I knew it was too late. But the moment we rode through the city gates, I asked the guardsmen if they had heard of a mosque collapsing. The first guardsman I spoke to had not, and for a heartbeat, I dared to hope that I had misremembered the date of the accident and that I had, in fact, arrived in time. Then another guardsman told me that a mosque had indeed collapsed just yesterday in the Kark quarter. His words struck me with the force of the executioner's axe. I had traveled so far only to receive the worst news of my life a second time, I walked to the mosque and saw the piles of bricks where there had once been a wall. It was 
a scene that had haunted my dreams for 20 years. But now the image remained even after I opened my eyes and with a clarity sharper than I could endure. I turned away and walked without aim, blind to what was around me, until I found myself before my old house, the one where Naja and I had lived. I stood in the street in front of it, filled with memory and anguish. I do not know how much time had passed when I became aware that a young woman had walked up to me. My lord, she said, I'm looking for the house of Fuad ibn Abbas. You have found it, I said. Are you Fuad ibn Abbas, my lord? I am, and I ask you, please, leave me be. My lord, I beg your forgiveness. My name is Maimuna and I assist the physicians at the Bimaristan. I tended to your wife before she died. I turned to look at her. You tended to Naja? I did, my lord. I am sworn to deliver a message to you from her. What message? She wished me to tell you that her last thoughts were of you. She wished me to tell you that while her life was short, it was made happy by the time she spent with you. She saw the tears streaming down my cheeks and said, Forgive me if my words cause you pain, my lord. There is nothing to forgive, child. Would that I had the means to pay you as much as this message is worth to me. Because a lifetime of thanks would still leave me in your debt. Grief owes no debt, she said. Peace be upon you, my lord. Peace be upon you, I said. She left, and I wandered the streets for hours, crying tears of release. All the while, I thought on the truth of Bashrat's words. Past and future are the same, and we cannot change either, only know them more fully. My journey to the past had changed nothing, but what I had learned had changed everything and I understood that it could not have been otherwise. If our lives are tales that Allah tells, then we are the audience as well as the players. And it is by living these tales that we receive their lessons. Night fell, and it was then that the city's guardsmen found me wandering the streets after curfew in my dusty clothes and asked who I was. I told them my name and where I lived, 
and the guardsmen brought me to my neighbors to see if they knew me. But they did not recognize me, and I was taken to jail. I told the guard captain my story, and he found it entertaining, but did not credit it. For who would? Then I remembered some news from my time of grief twenty years before, and told him that your majesty's grandson would be born an albino. Some days later, word of the infant's condition reached the captain, and he brought me to the governor of the quarter. When the governor heard my story. He brought me here to the palace, and when your lord chamberlain heard my story, he in turn brought me here to the throne room, so that I might have the infinite privilege of recounting it to your Majesty. Now my tale has caught up to my life, coiled as they both are, and the direction they take next is for your Majesty to decide. I know many things that will happen here in Baghdad over the next twenty years, but nothing about what awaits me now. I have no money for the journey back to Cairo and the gate of years there. Yet I count myself fortunate beyond measure, for I was given the opportunity to revisit my past mistakes, and I have learned what remedies Allah allows. I would be honored to relate everything I know of the future, if Your Majesty sees fit to ask. But for myself, the most precious knowledge I possess is this. Nothing erases the past. There is repentance, there is atonement, and there is forgiveness. That is all. But that is enough. My wife Stephanie has a saying: uh, Some people don't believe that fat meat is greasy, which <laughs> which used to confuse me until I really broke it down. Oh, yes, yeah, some people don't believe that fat meat is in fact greasy. Yes, because it is. Yes, fat meat is greasy. Okay, so oh, so they're non-believers. Oh, okay, I got it. I got it now. And he strikes me as as that sort. Does Fuad ibn Abbas? Um, he he doesn't believe that fat meat is greasy. But he has to find out for himself, and that's the thing about being a human. Uh, we have to find out for ourselves. We are sometimes even unappreciative when someone tries to give us the benefit of their experience in order to help save us some grief or woe or another thing that befalls us. But I think, generally speaking, we need to take those hard knocks in life. Those are the lessons that really penetrate, you know. But here we are, human beings, on the road to whatever fulfillment and happiness we can muster. And I think there's a part of me that, I mean, when I ask myself, would you really like to know the future? I I, I have to admit that. At the end of the day, no. 
I'd rather not know what's ahead. I acknowledge freely that my life has been a a magical journey of unexpected riches. And if the remainder of my life doesn't live up to that, I certainly don't want to know it now. (laughs) And if the rest of my life turns out to be more of same, then I don't want to spoil the surprise. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all, with an assist from the very lovely and talented Kristen Torres. Our editing and sound design are by Misha Stanton, and they are fabulous. And my undying thanks to Ted Chang and Knopf for allowing me to read this story. You can find it in his new collection entitled Exhalation. If you enjoyed listening to The Merchant and The Alchemist's Gate, please look for the full collection as an audiobook, and it's narrated by Eduardo Ballerini, Dominique Hoffman, Amy Landon, and uh, the great Ted Chang himself. And, as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend an episode to a friend who you think would enjoy it. You can also leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and include a story suggestion for us. We read them, we use them, we put them on the air. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story, or if you can't wait that long, well, hey, why not indulge in the next episode right now and exclusive bonus author interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early, ad-free. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar Or if you're listening in Stitcher, simply tap the menu button in your app and select premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I'm LeVar Burton and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time. Bye. You don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue. Panting, you're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.